Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Anti Culture. This one I am very nervous but excited for. Why, you ask? Because today we're chatting with Warren Kinsella. For those of you not familiar with Warren, this may be one of my most political episodes yet, proudly shining the light on Canadian politics, which is one of my guilty pleasures. That and Real Housewives. Warren is a 10 times published author, previous advisor to Jean Chrétien, commentator for The Globe and Mail, The National Post, and more. On the side, he plays bass for a band called SFH, which stands for something with an expletive that may come out in this interview. Warren Kinsella also most recently worked on the Biden-Harris campaign and has previously worked with Hillary Clinton in the U.S. He spent his quarantine in a small rural Ontario town that reminds him of Alberta. As a warning, this episode does include expletives that have not been censored. There is a, a Trump Brexit demographic, so they do tend to be white, male, 50s, 60s, 40s, mm-hmm. high school education, and attitudinally, they believe that they've been left behind culturally, technologically, mm. uh, politically, economically, and to some extent, they have been, right? Yeah. You know, in the Rust Belt in the United States or East London, you know, they have been. So they see themselves as the forgotten. So when a populist when a demagogue like Trump comes along, or the Brexiteer type people, and say, I will never forget you. I will speak for you. They rally right. around that person. Right. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you that Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. You can find Anticulture and other locally curated shows at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Anticulture is also brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose where you buy your energy from. If you switch retailers, nothing changes about the delivery of electricity or natural gas to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms for leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. The choice is yours and there's a better deal available to you. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Warren Kinsella is certainly all the things I outlined before, but he is also widely known, mocked, and prevalently referenced on Twitter. And his biography online states, This website was established quite a few years back to counter attacks on Warren by neo-Nazis and white supremacists. After that, it became a place where some people would go to read some of the things Warren has written, or to allow them to contact him directly. Recently, however, it has become a bizarre farrago of political commentary, music reviews, and musings about the nature of human existence. It is also a website to which a lot of folks are inexplicably referred by Google, who are indeed evil. 
I first came across Warren when working on my own piece about white supremacy in Alberta, which will be coming out soon, with some of his work on the subject that we referenced. More on that later. In the meantime, I'm excited to jump into this episode with you as we explore politics, white supremacy in Canada, and the somewhat ridiculous ideologies in place when it comes to the international stage right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Hopefully it'll be useful for you. Yeah, for sure. I think it will for sure. And I, I'm very, very excited to ask you some questions. As you know, I, I discovered you kind of through your book on the extreme right in Alberta. Yeah. Since then, I've been an avid follower on Twitter, which has been quite the journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the Wild West on Twitter. It sure is, yeah. Well, why don't we get started by just giving you the opportunity to tell listeners about yourself and how people might best know you. Jeez, I don't know where to start. That's the hardest question of all. <laughs> somebody to say who they are. I've lived uh, all over Canada. I'm a lawyer. I teach law at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. I've written 10 books on everything from punk rock to the extreme right to terrorism to politics. I run my own consulting company in Ontario. We work nationally. We mainly do kind of issues management stuff. So when people get into trouble, you know, they give us a call and we try and help them out on, you know, the issues that they're facing. I'm a musician. I've been in punk rock bands since I was 15 years old. I got four kids who are great, but they've all flown the nest. And most of the time I live either in Toronto a couple of days of the week. And then the, the rest of the week I'm living in a place called Prince Edward County, just outside of Belleville. It's that part of Lake right. Ontario that dips into the, the lake. And I live in an old place here. And this is where I've been since the start of the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> That's a summary of me, I guess. That's awesome. And um, yeah, obviously you're, you're quite well known from having the 10 books published, but you also had some involvement with Jean Chrétien in the past. What was your role with him exactly? How it started, I was practicing law at an Ottawa Valley law firm. I was a litigator and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And then I in those days, Mr. Chrétien was in private practice too. And so he was in the next building. Mm. Like it was it was one of those, you know, two building deals that's connected at the main floor. And I used to see him lined up to get his sandwich on his own and then he'd sit down and read the sports pages mm. and say hi to people. And I, I'm just a sucker for that. I just thought it was terrific how approachable and you know, what a regular guy he was. Right. And then when the Meech Lake Accord came along, I objected to that. I objected to the notion of putting an interpretive clause in the Constitution and before it had been interpreted. And I thought that was a really bad idea. And Kretschmann was the only politician around who felt the same way. Hmm. So uh, when he decided he was going to run for the Liberal Party leadership, I just volunteered for him. So they uh, had me writing speeches for him because my, my undergraduate degree is in journalism. And, uh, you know, I'd been a journalist at the Calgary Herald and the Ottawa Citizen and so on. And I just got to know him. And I guess he got to know me. And after he won the leadership convention in Calgary in 1990, I got back to my law practice and he phoned me up one day and he said, why don't you come work for me? And I said, oh, well, I, you know, I was thinking I just continued to be a lawyer. And he said, you can be a lawyer anytime. You know, how many chances do you get to have fun with me? 
So I did it. I jumped in, and that was beginning the beginning of a long journey in politics. And there's no better teacher of politics in Canada than Jean Chrétien. That's awesome. That's such a good story. And so how long were you part of his team there? I was with him when we were in opposition, and then I he picked me to run his war room. So it was the first war room in wow. Canadian politics. And I had, um, and I don't want to claim credit for inventing the concept. I had gotten to know James Carville and Stephanopoulos and Betsy Wright and those people who were running the war room for Mr. Clinton in, in Little Rock. And so they helped me set up what we did here in Canada in the 1993 election. Wow. Uh, and I guess we did okay because we reduced the government to two seats, the Tories to two seats. <laughs> At that point, I had a few options. I hadn't really thought of myself being in government. I'm not kind of a government guy, mm-hmm. but I got offered the position of being the chief of staff for a whole bunch of different ministries, you know, Canada Post and Public Works and Supply Services and CMHC. And so I learned a lot doing that. So I did that for about two and a half years. I became a dad and decided it was time to uh, go and moved out to Vancouver. During that time, did that, because before just being a lawyer and kind of a journalist, did your involvement with Jean Chrétien change your public image at all? And if so, how did that shift? I think what really happened, you know, it's hard to know for sure, you know, when you become known by people. Right. And I think it was less me working for Mr. Chrétien. It was more the fact that my first book came out. My first book mm. was called Un- Unholy Alliances. And it actually came out the year before the election. And he was really supportive of that. He really backed me up on that. He thought it was important that I do that. It was about terrorism. And and basically the thesis of the book was that outlaw Arab nations were going to export terrorism to North America. Right. And, you know, I had some critics criticize me for that. But of course, a few years later, I think it was shown to be true, mm-hmm. uh, sadly, on 9-11. And then my next book came out after we won the election, which was Web of Hate which is the one you've read. Yes. And, you know, that one is about a subject I've been researching for many years, which is organized racism and extreme expressions of racism mm-hmm. in Canada. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the timing that you got involved around that Arab Spring and leading up to 9-11 era, it's kind of the last frontier that's researched in the field of international relations. And it's kind of how we see the global scale world right now where we're kind of mindful of those relationships and those conflicting identities and, and actors in a sense that's that's different than what we're used to after the Cold War era. And I thought it was really interesting that you decided to focus on internal dialogue and kind of those extreme expressions within Canada. What do you think is kind of the the international stage right now? What do you think is our threat? What do you think is the thing we need to keep a pulse on the most? Well, it's worse now, you know, than it's ever been. You know, I got involved in opposing and researching writing about the far right when I was in my punk rock days. So I was in a punk rock band in Calgary called The Hot Nasties. And we started to see showing up at our shows skinheads. You know, the skinheads we knew at the start Mm. were actually into ska and bluebeat and, you know, weren't fascists at all. Right. And uh, there was change around 78, 79, which is when the British movement and the National Front started recruiting skinheads in Britain and France. Mm. And then it, you know, jumped pond and started to happen in Canada. And it was bad. 
that really became their model for the succeeding years. So you'd have these older, more long-time committed racists and neo-Nazis and white supremacist leaders recruiting, you know, these alienated, angry young men in the form of skinheads. Right. And then the, you know, the radical change really took place uh, in 2014, 2013, 2012, when the Tea Party started organizing in the United States in the wake of the global economic collapse. You know, and it was, they weren't the only populist movement that was taking place. It was also Occupy, which they thought was wonderful. Yeah. But Occupy fell apart, whereas the Tea Party people took over the Republican Party. And Trump uh, obviously came out of that, and he succeeded in realizing his vision, you know, in 2016. I've been working for Hillary in the States. I worked for her in three different states and at her Brooklyn headquarters, and you know, I'd love to tell you that I saw it coming, but I didn't. You know, wow. I did not. I didn't think that we would lose. I, I was sure we would win. We had a superior candidate. You know, she's such a remarkable person, so experienced, and you know, I was so proud to work for her. And to be beaten by this racist, you know, sexist pig was just shocking. When Trump became president of the United States, you know, arguably the most powerful person on earth. What happened in the far right is they felt licensed, right? At that point, right. they were no longer being shut out of power. They actually had the ultimate power. And right. they um, started recruiting on that basis and fundraising and became much more of a threat than they ever have. And it, it hasn't stopped. You know, I know that. So I worked for Biden and Harris in this campaign and was, you know, happy to beat Trump. But, you know, I think people are deluding themselves. They think that the movement that gave rise to Trump has disappeared. It has not. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to be dealing with them, you know, in the years to come as well. Right. And I'm going to take it back a little bit here and kind of reframe a bigger question about identity. So I'm curious, with all of your exposure to your involvement in the US and in Canada, and even being from Alberta and being involved in politics and, and also being involved with the Liberal Party, what are some cultural or associative identifiers that you stick to? Do you consider yourself an Albertan still? Do you label yourself a liberal? What kind of terminology do you like to use in your own circles? It's funny uh, you mentioned that. I have, you know, like a lot of punks, I still consider myself a punk, <laughs> even, even though I'm an old bastard. <laughs> so, you know, culturally, my subculture is oppositional, right? And, it, it, you know, we didn't just do bands. You know, we did art, we did drama, we did fashion. I love that. Uh, we did poetry. You know, punk rock became a youth movement that kind of moved in all all types of different, uh, all different types of expression. Mm -hmm. And it's oppositional, you know, it's, it's against uh, power and those who wield it and governments and teachers and so on. So the contradiction, I think, in me is, you know, I started working for Jean Chrétien. Right and right. became one one of the senior advisors, and so a lot of my punk friends thought that was a betrayal, and a lot of the political people I knew didn't understand the punk rock thing. <laughs> and I guess what I said to my punk friends is, we wanted societal change, we wanted to destroy you know sexism and destroy racism. And mm -hmm. what I found was, you know, I used to put on shows in Calgary, and I would get. You know, I could get 500 kids out on word of mouth. And, you know, I would try and get them to focus on, you know, I did rock against racism gigs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. 
And I get mad at them, right? Because it is evident that just a lot of them just wanted to party and they weren't focusing on the issues I wanted them to focus on. You know, as I've gotten older, I realized that's their choice and they're entitled to make that choice. Right. So that, but I wanted to do more. I just, you know, putting on a gig and putting up some banners just wasn't cutting it. And so I had to do more. And so that's when I uh, joined the Liberal Party of Alberta, in fact, because it was the only party that was really opposed to Western separatism, which Mm. at that point was a real vehicle for these racist movements. Wow. And um, so where, who am I? You know, I, I'm not a member of any political party. I've become very uh, disillusioned with the federal liberal party under Trudeau, Mm. Uh, you know, black, blackface for me was a racist act and disqualifying what he did to Jody Wilson Raybould was, possibly racist in itself, but certainly it was obstruction mm-hmm. of justice mm-hmm. and disqualifying. You know, I, I, I believe that he should have been disqualified by Canadians. Uh, regrettably, they didn't. So I guess, you know, where I'm at politically, I vote Green. I vote last federal election, I voted New Democrat. I voted for progressive conservatives, you know, people that I know that I, I like, certainly voted for liberals. So I'm kind of all over the map. Right. And in that respect, I think I'm probably like a lot of Canadians. A lot of Canadians just move around too. Yeah, for sure. Do you have more of an affinity to your ties to Alberta or more so in Ontario right now? I miss Alberta. I mean, Alberta's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like when I was there, one of the things that makes me really mad about Central Canadians is, you know, they go, oh, you're from Alberta, you know, and it's like we're all clansmen or something. Right, yeah. And it's like, fuck you, you know, <laughs> like, fuck you. Like, I've done more research on racism than, you know, your average Canadian. Yeah. And race, racism and anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial and, and all of those terrible things, it's a problem in every region of the country. Mm-hmm. Every part of the country, every province, including little Prince Edward Island, has experienced organized racism. So this notion that Albertans are more susceptible to that is just false. Mm -hmm. You know, Ontario's got as many, if not more, problems with racism and bigotry. I was recruited from Western Canada to come work in Toronto, where I never thought I would go. You know, I was offered a job, and I liked the people who offered me the job, and I ended up staying. So I found that, you know, Toronto is this enormous place, but people are actually kind of friendly. Hmm. And, you know, for me, it was great. It was a great cultural scene. So I could, you know, my band can play and I can go see shows. Yeah. And it uh, became home for a while. I had four kids and my ex and I, you know, we did okay in Toronto. But I just, I don't think of myself as uh, part of the Toronto scene anymore. I just, since the pandemic, I just kind of moved to, you know, this very rural part of Ontario. And it's, it looks and feels a lot like Alberta. So mm. just, I feel more at home here. That's great. And I guess I'm curious too, with all your involvements currently in the political scene, how have you seen, I guess, the impact of Trumpism mirror itself in Canada? What's, is there a difference? Is it just kind of fueling the flame? What do you think is your perspective of that right now? It's just, you know, the United States is a much more conservative country. You know, I lived in, in Texas when I was a kid. That's where I started school. I had lots of American friends and relatives. Hmm. But it's just a much more conservative country. And, you know, the notion that they would ever embrace Bernie Sanders was just comical to me. Like, <laughs> it was just, it, it was just never going to happen. Certainly in Canada, but 
we're just a more progressive nation. So the, right. the conservatives I know, the vast majority of them, found Trump just revolting and appalling and disgusting. You know, many of them gave voice to that and just said it was this guy is despicable. And, you know, maybe they said it for strategic reasons because they know that he injures the conservative brand. Mm. But I think most of them are genuine that while they're conservatives, you know, favoring smaller government and less taxes and all that kind of stuff, they really, they're not Trump types. So I think we're lucky. But that does mean, of course, as I pointed out earlier, that we're not susceptible to racist tendencies and so on. Like in the province of Quebec where I was born, you know, they're telling women what they're allowed to wear, you know, Muslim women and, and otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it's just completely unacceptable that a government should say that to a woman or to any person, you know, this is what you're required to wear and we'll prosecute you if you don't. Right. So we, you know, we're not perfect either, but I, I think we're a damn sight better than the Americans on these issues. Something that I think people appreciate about you is your outspokenness on Twitter and how you add your voice to a lot of issues in a very matter-of-fact way that I think is a confidence that we don't see very often, especially with the younger generation on Twitter that are kind of twiddling their thumbs thumbs and trying to figure out where they're standing. So I'm curious what you like about the app and how you're perceived and, and what kind of interactions you typically have on Twitter. Well, for me, I had a website which actually just celebrated its 20th anniversary this week. I didn't even, I wasn't paying attention. It's like, I looked at the calendar and was like, holy crap, I've been doing the website for 20 years. Crazy. Congratulations. So I, see, I see Twitter as kind of a distillation of what I do on my website. Right. You know, the internet is, Twitter in particular, is punk rock online. Wow. Right? Yeah. It, it, you know, and it, so it fits my personality. You know, I'm not subtle. I'm not uh, shy. And, you know, if I want to tell you, fuck you, I'm going to say, fuck you. And, you know, I know a lot of people in politics are much more careful and stuff like that. And they feel they have to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, you know, like, I don't know if you saw it last night, but Brian Pallister, you know, who's the conservative premier of Manitoba, who I've never had a hell mm. high regard for. Really. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you saw the clip of him. If you don't think that COVID's real, right now you're an idiot. You need to understand that we're all in this together. You cannot fail to understand this. Stay apart. So I'm the guy who has to tell you to stay apart at Christmas and in the holiday season you celebrate with your faith or without your faith, that you celebrate with normally with friends and with family, that where you share memories and build memories. I'm that guy. And I'll say that because it will keep you safe. I'm the guy who's stealing Christmas to keep you safe because you need to do this now. You need to do the right thing because next year we'll have lots to celebrate and we'll celebrate this year if we do the right thing this year. That's it. Like, that's it. Authenticity. And I think the reason why I've got so many followers on Twitter, and they're, they're very protective of me. You know, when people come after me, they, my, one of my assistants used to call them Warren's Army. Right? It's <laughs> like, I've got these people who are watching my back. I think it's because they value 
authenticity and then they know that I'm right. being myself. Yeah. And that's why I think Pallister, you know, like he had Paul Stanley from Kiss, you know, celebrating him last night. It's because he, he finally just let the, you know, the curtain go down. Hmm. And it's like he just gave this very emotional, raw appeal. That's what people want. Yeah. Right? And my book, Fight the Right, was about that. That conservatives have a smaller vote constituency than progressives do. But why is it that conservatives keep winning elections, you know, in Western Europe and North America? Mm -hmm. And it's because guys like Trump speak in an unvarnished, uncorrect kind of way. Right. And people people find that appealing because they think it's more authentic. So that's why I think, you know, one of the politicians that I've worked with who was so successful, Gretchen, Gretchen was like that. Gretchen would speak in an earthy, accessible, populist way, and people loved it. Hmm. And, you know, they didn't mind when he stumbled over words or when he got something wrong because they knew he was being real. Right. That, you know, that's what I would say to any of your listeners who think about politics. It's by all means do it, you know, whether you're on the left or the right or whatever, I don't care, but just... Be yourself, mm -hmm. be authentic, you know, speak from the heart. And if you do that, people will, will gravitate towards your message. I think you're right. I think that we're kind of over the whole chase of politics and kind of how it's it's overly censored and people are so cautious. I think we're ready for, for some real talk and we want to see that. So no matter what where you're coming from, left or right, I think that's that's really needed. And it's evident, like you said, in how elections are turning out in a lot of ways. And they're forgiving too. You know, if you make a mistake, they'll give you a break. You know, they just want to see somebody who's authentic. And so hopefully, you know, that's what we're going to see more of. But I've just found Trudeau to be just a complete phony. Yeah. And, you know, I don't knock him for being a drama teacher in his past. <laughs> I knock him for being a drama teacher still. Like it just, <laughs> you know, it's like a yoga instructor is like our prime minister. Right. And it just seems so phony and fake. And I want somebody who just like, I feel like it's just giving it to me straight too often. I feel he doesn't. Yeah. I feel like so many Canadians feel the same way, regardless of party affiliation. I'm curious, what do you, what do you see coming up for Canada next in politics? What are you hoping to see? Is there anyone you have an, an eye on? Well, the cataclysm is the pandemic, of course, right? There's yeah. Been, it's the biggest event of many of us, most of us, our lifetimes, you know, politically, culturally, economically, technologically it, it's just it's changed everything and so at the start of it my prediction was you know it's going to end some political careers which did in the case of trump and it's going to give rise to some political careers and it's going to change the way we treat each other and the role we see for the state like you know i'd said to my conservative friends at the start i said you guys are in for a surprise and like, why? i said because the pandemic is going to show people remind people that there is a right and proper role for government. Because if the government mm -hmm. was not stepping in to offset the virus and look for vaccines and protect us and so on, like who else was going to do that? Right. Private sector? Like, no. So that to me is the big event that's changing everything. I don't know entirely where uh -huh. it's going to end up, but I think it's, it's going to shift attitudes about governance. I think it's going to give rise to a new crop of leaders, which is good because we certainly need that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's going to change the way in which we deal with each other. And 
you know, certainly there's, you know, people who are ignorant and assholes and not wearing masks and so on. But most majority of the people I've found are, are really exhibiting a lot of kindness and caring for each other right? and trying, trying to come together. And so, you know, so that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It'll be really interesting to see how things shift after 2020. I think it, it really has changed how we think about a lot of things and has loosened up a lot of people that thought they had rigid stances on certain things, including government involvement. Absolutely. It's huge. Like it is, you know, the tectonic plates, you know, that are beneath our feet. Mm -hmm. Everything's everything's shifting right now. Yeah. And, you know, some of it obviously is is bad. You know, we got hundreds of thousands of people infected in Canada. I just was reading before you called me. And we got deaths are rising, you know, more than 10,000. And in the United States, of course, it's just apocalyptic with their face yeah. but you know I do believe we're going to get to the other side of it my mom's 88 and she said uh, you know and she lived through the war and she said it's like the war you know there's going to be days that are going to be terrible and there's going to be days of great heroism and achievement and we just have to get through it mm-hmm. you know, as a co- collectivity so I think we will yeah absolutely can you tell us a little bit more about how you were involved with the Biden-Harris campaign and, and what you're looking forward to about that presidency? Uh, well, usually on Democratic campaigns, you know, I cross the border and I go work directly in those campaigns. So, like, mm-hmm. so for Hillary, I worked in New Hampshire, I worked in Maine, and then I worked at her Brooklyn headquarters. Of course, with the pandemic, we can't cross the border. So what I did for months is phone calls. Early on in the pandemic, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who was Biden's campaign manager, said, you know, our vote, Democrats, progressives, are much more willing to wear masks, are much more willing to social distance and take sensible precautions. And the other side, you know, the conservative Republican vote, just were against all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, you know, they were having their super spreader rallies and stuff like that. So the decision that she and others, she and Biden made, is we needed to get our vote to vote early in the form of absentee ballots, early voting, mail-in voting. And so that's what we did. And so for months, I and others would just make phone calls to voters. You know, I did it in New Hampshire, Florida, California, and helping people and urging them to get out and vote early. And so that's why you saw that phenomenon on election night where it looked like Trump was going to win again. <laughs> and I kept saying to friends who were despairing, just wait, just wait, just wait. Mm. Because the advanced votes get counted second, not right. first. And of course, we ended up beating him soundly because our, our vote was massively turned out prior to voting day on November 3rd. It was just, it was so good to see decency and goodness. Yeah. You know, coming back. And uh, like I said, you know, we got a long way to go, but it's nice to see the United States back on that road again. Absolutely. You're involved with so many things. I know that you are still a part of a band. I think that's correct. The SFH. Mm. Yeah. Shit from hell. Yeah. Thank you. I was waiting for you to say it, not me. And which is lowers expectations. Yeah. uh, Yeah. We've been recording. We did one song. You should play it on your show called Masket or Casket.
masks. Nice. And um, so it's on YouTube. You can find it. Okay, great. And yeah, no, I've been painting a lot. I'm a painter. I do cartooning. I have a podcast as well. Lots of writing. You know, I write for Post Media. So I found the pandemic, you know, while it's lonely, you know, I live by myself with a couple of dogs. Creatively, it's just been amazing. Yeah. Um, so I've written tons of songs and painted, and it's just been great in that way. And I, you know, I've been doing a lot of kind of outdoor activity. I also, lots of I do long distance biking and stuff like that. So it's been good. You know, it's, that's uh, great. I'm very fortunate where I am. So how do you decide, like, okay, I'm going to help the Biden-Harris campaign, or I'm going to work on another book, or I'm going to do this? Like, how do you balance those things? How do you know what to put more attention towards? You pay attention to your heart, you know, and that's what I say to the young people, come see me, and they say, I don't want to be Warren Cantella. And I'm like, well, that's very flattering, but I got started by stuffing envelopes and knocking on doors, you know, I didn't, mm. You know, start off as some big strategist kind of guy, and you got to follow your, follow your passion. Like if you're doing, if you're working for a candidate or a cause that you believe in, like it's just not work. You're just doing something you can't believe. Right. You're doing something that you can that you love. You know that you believe in, and then some later on, you know when you get good at it, they're going to pay you for it. You can't believe somebody's paying you for it. <laughs> so you got to pay attention to that. You got to work mm. for people and causes you believe in. You know, that's the credo I've lived by uh, since, you know, I was 15 and in a punk rock band is you've just got to keep working at it and, and you're going to fail. Like, you know, I lost with Hillary and I've lost in other campaigns over the years, but I've learned from those mm-hmm. right? and I've learned how to do better next time. And I, you know, I'm proud of the people I've worked for and with and it's been really rewarding. So, so I just got to live another hundred years so I can finish <laughs> doing all the other stuff I want to do. Back to your authorship, I think there's so many impactful pieces that you've written. I think there's a lot of commentary that you've added to the Canadian conversation that is not very popular per se, and not in a in a way of people reacting to it, but more so it's it's not that common that people write about the subjects that you do. And I'm curious what book you're most proud of or what what piece of work you think had the most impact during your career. What I'm proudest of, the one I love, is Fury's Hour just my book about punk rock. That one, I just, I love doing that. Mm. You know, I, and I, over the years, I've interviewed the Ramones and the Clash and the Sex Pistols. And wow. you know, I know the guys in Bad Religion. I know the guys in Pennywise and some have become friends. So I love that book. That's the book I love the most. But it wasn't a bestseller. It was, you know, got great reviews and stuff, but it wasn't. Um, right. The one that was the biggest seller was Web of Hate. And I think that's probably as a result the one that had the biggest impact. Because mm-hmm. I still I still get people saying to me how shocked they are yeah. when they read the book. And I say to them, good, I wanted to shock you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to wake you up. I didn't want to tell you that things are okay. I wanted to tell you that things aren't because yeah. they're not. And so it was a wake people up book and I think it, it worked in that way. Totally. And I, I'm really curious about that book because there's some interviews within it that a lot of people would be afraid to approach. And I know I'm obviously thinking of your interview with Tierluck McPherson, who was the Imperial Wizard here in Alberta and had such an interesting story. And how did you approach those type of people? How are you able to interview them in a way that wasn't contentious? I'm curious about that. Well, I've had rifles jammed in my chest and death threats and all that shit. 
you know, I mean, if somebody wants to get you, they're going to get you. So I don't worry about that too much. What I would do with these people is, you know, I'd be straight with them. I'd say to them, I don't agree with you. Hmm. I don't agree with anything you say, but I'm going to give you a fair hearing. So I encourage you to take the interview and I'll take the interview. That way we make sure that, you know, it's accurate. I quote you accurately. Right. And I'm going to let you say what you want. And what I believe and what, what is always true is these assholes always end up hanging themselves, right? Hmm. There's nothing, there's nothing that I can say that's nearly half as bad as what these guys say. Hmm. So I, I let them just say what they want to say. And, you know, and then there are, <laughs> and then people, you know, come out and object to that and they're horrified by that. <laughs> so that's, you know, what I did. And, you know, I think the most dangerous thing when you're interviewing terrorists, you know, cause I, that's really who these people are mm-hmm. is to pretend to be a sympathizer. Right. Cause when they, when they find out that you lied to them, that's when they want to kill you. Right. And like, you know, there's no question they would say, you know, you're an asshole and you're a race traitor and stuff like that. But they knew I was at least being straight with them. Hmm. You know, I wasn't, wasn't on their side, but I was going to give their side an opportunity to be heard. Back to a Canadian context, what do you think is stirring up these extremist groups? What do you think is the cause, the root cause of some of those people banding together? I think it's so hidden, we don't really think about it, but I know that it's it's ongoing. And how do we get to the root of that problem? The issues move around. Like, you know, in the early 70s, they opposed the metric system and bilingualism, <laughs> right? Right. And so that became the source of recruitment and fundraising for them. But they're very adept. They're very flexible. And so, you know, in the the 80s, when there was a lot of activity, appropriate activity to push for women's reproductive freedom, they organized against that. And in the 90s, you know, the legislative efforts to permit uh, equal marriage, gay marriage, they objected to that. So basically what they do is they move around. Wherever Mm -hmm. there's a flashpoint, You'll see them, whether it's gun control or gay rights or women's rights or whatever, they'll just organize around that. They're actually kind of mercenary about what issues they're focused on. But, you know, there's certain things that they never abandon, which is racism. You know, they oppose other races. They're sexism and misogyny. They regard women as lesser beings. They, uh, they're anti-Semitism. They believe that there is a Jewish conspiracy, you know, and in some cases, Jews are the spawn of Satan. Those are the kind of the constants, but in terms of the flashpoint issues, those, those move around. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that there are those constants because I think it, even amongst those constants that shifts a lot and it's, it's always disheartening when something brings those things to the surface. And I think kind of what's in mind is, is the racism issue here in Canada. And I think a lot of, a lot of people that aren't maybe extreme, but maybe are more right wing, like to turn a blind eye to that or kind of disregard that that's something that is actively happening in our country. At least that's what I've seen. But do you think there's been kind of a new wave of that kind of rhetoric in Canada with the George Floyd happening and with Trump, how do you think that's impacted our country? Yeah. Oh yeah. There's definitely, you know, the the shootings in Quebec city, right. You know, murder of people, six people at prayer when they're, they're most vulnerable. 
that was an extreme hateful act. And, you know, there's been a whole series of things that have happened here, not nearly as much as they do in the United States. But yeah, you know, Trump, 2016 changed everything. Mm -hmm. You know, for these guys, Trump gave them a license that they had never had before. You know, they'd always been on the margins of society before 2016. After 2016, they were being embraced by the most powerful man on earth. Right. So, of course, they're going to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. He he legitimized, in their view, a lot of the stuff they were doing. So that's why it became so important that the rest of us opposed Trump and drove him out of power. And do you think there's any redemption for that moving forward? Like, do you think there's a way to stop that pattern of thinking within Canada? You know, there is a a Trump-Brexit demographic. So they do tend to be white, male, 50s, 60s, 40s, Mm -hmm. high school education. And attitudinally, they believe that they've been left behind culturally, technologically, Mm. uh, politically, economically. And to some extent, they have been, right? Um, Yeah. You know, in the Rust Belt in the United States or East London, you know, they have been. So they see themselves as the forgotten. So when a populist, when a demagogue like Trump comes along or the Brexiteer type people and say, I will never forget you. I will speak for you. They rally around that person. And that's the danger, right? Is that for these forgotten individuals, another Trump is going to come along and capture their support again. And obviously they were successful, right? Brexit Mm -hmm. happened. None of us expected it. Trump happened. None of us expected it. So it's there. And, you know, Nixon used to call it the silent majority. It's not a majority per se, but nor is it silent anymore, right? It's, right. it's a motive. It's a motivated, mobilized political demographic. We have to take it seriously. Right. Do you see a way that we can reach those people in that demographic without entertaining those extremist ideas or maybe kind of resolving that within them? Paying attention to them, listening to them, doesn't mean we have to agree with them all the time. I think they innately know that Trump wouldn't cross the street for them in the real world. But, you know, they are right, you know, that um, free trade agreements did lose them, you know, a lot of their employment and the life that they've become accustomed to. You know, there are more people of color in their communities, and we need to show them that those people are just like them and have the same hopes and fears and dreams and kind of bring them together. And so I believe, yeah, I believe in affirmative action. I believe in integration movements. I believe in ongoing interaction and intermingling of people because that's when they discover that they're really not that different from each other. And then they can work much more as a collectivity. Right. Yeah, that's really good. And such an interesting perspective to add to that that dialogue. I haven't really thought of it that way, that they are a group that feel left out. That's a That's a really good perspective. Mm-hmm. It's easy to be mad at them, but they do have a legitimate point to make is that the rest of you guys, you know, you've done pretty well with the changes that have taken place in society and we've been left behind. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, forgot, you've forgotten us. And there, there is some truth to that. Right. I can give no better advice than the advice I follow, which is to get involved. Sending out a tweet is not enough. Putting up a Facebook post is not enough. Mm. You have to get involved. You've got to get off your couch. You've got to get off your ass and get 
actively involved. That's how things change. And, you know, for sure, I'm on Twitter a lot, but it's only one facet of what I do. Right. You know, you've got to get active and energized and just don't let go. And that's how you win and that's how you change society. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Anticulture. This one was certainly a more contentious episode than what we're used to, but my hope is that you take away from it some critical thinking for yourself. You can keep up with Warren on Twitter at Kinsella Warren. That's K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A. Warren is W-A-R-R-E-N. And you can also join the conversation by tweeting me at Josiah Podcast or reaching out at josiahpodcast.com. This episode was recorded and edited with the help of We Edit Podcasts. You can check out their studio spaces at weeditpodcasts.com. Anticulture will be back for more episodes on January 8th, 2021. Until then, we have an amazing Christmas and New Year, and we'll see you on the other side. If you find yourself missing the show, check out our YouTube channel linked at josiahpodcast.com for some fun bonus content and get in touch with me at any time. I can't wait to bring you more in the new year. All my best, Josiah.